I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Democrat House impeachment managers have concluded their case against former President Trump. The second impeachment trial in one year of Donald Trump seems to be heading for a conclusion. And we are going to speak with a man who is watching it all, is going to be a juror on the case, and has spent most of today speaking with the Trump legal team. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I am Michael Knowles. It's funny that we're in the midst of this impeachment trial of the former president, and the bigger news of the day would seem to be Disney firing one of their big TV stars, Gina Carano. Other news, cancel culture, not just affecting the former president, but affecting uh, conservative journalists as well. We will get to all of that, but I do have to ask you, Senator, uh, what is going on today? I know that the, the Democrats concluded their case Uh, But unlike last year, it it seems like uh, there's just not a lot being reported. It seems like kind of an opaque process. We don't even know how long this thing is going to go. So uh, could could you just briefly tell us about how that case concluded and then what the Trump legal team is thinking? Well, sure. I think the the kind of quick bottom line is that the Democrats failed to get the job done and and they've run out of steam. So so they were given Hmm. 16 hours. They were given eight hours both days. They ended up finishing four or five hours early today. So, so they, they quit early. Um, and I think it was because they had been number one, unbelievably repetitive, making the same points over and over again. In fact, I had fun today, Claire McCaskill, you remember the former democratic Senator from Missouri, uh, tweeted out that, that 
she thought the house manager's case was getting really repetitive and redundant and kept repeating itself. Um, she didn't quite do, do that, but I thought you would appreciate that. And, and, and I, I saw that and just hit retweet, like with no commentary whatsoever. I'm just, I'm, I'm sure Claire loved that I was retweeting her, but she was right on that. It, you know, I mean, even a stop clock. When she's right, she's right. So they ran out of steam and the bottom line is they didn't get the job done. And, and so where are we now tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, the president's defense lawyers will present their case. Uh, they have a total of 16 hours over two days. They will not take all that time. They will take substantially less time than that. Uh, and so after we finished today, I went and sat down with the lawyers. I actually grabbed uh, Lindsey Graham and I grabbed Mike Lee and said, hey, let's go sit down and just talk through with the lawyers what they're planning and give our thoughts. And, and so the three of us went in um, president's defense team, they're, they're meeting in, in the LBJ room, uh, which is actually the room where in non-COVID times, the Senate minority has lunch. So they're in what will be our lunchroom. Sadly, we weren't in the LBJ room for the last six years, but we will have moved back to the LBJ room once COVID is over. Right. Um, with this sort, sort of smirking portrait of LBJ looking down on you. And it's, it's right off the side of the, the <laughs> Senate floor. Um, and so what happened, Lindsay shared his thoughts, Mike shared his thoughts. Um, I, I'm going to refrain from saying what they had to say, but I'm happy to tell you and, and, and verdict listeners what I had to say. Well, I, w- I would like to know, uh, sort of your, your advice for the legal team, because I, I know on the one hand, p- people are thinking, look, this case is over as you made, I think very clear last night. It, it ain't going yep. anywhere. They're they're not going to convict Trump, and and so as a practical matter, they're obviously not going to remove him from office because that's not possible, and and they're not going to convict him anyway. Uh, but as a historical matter, th- this really does matter. I mean, this this is setting a new precedent, yes. I guess. Uh, that you know this could have uh, huge political effects into the future. So so the arguments they make are going to uh, redound throughout history. Uh, there's no doubt, and and we've had two days of the Democrats pounding their narrative, and so there needs to be a counter story. Um, what I started out saying is actually what you just said. As I said, look, you got you, you got to remember, you've already won. Hmm. There are not 67 votes to convict. There there are 55 votes to convict, plus minus two. I think there's a low of 53. I think there's a high of 57, and and that's really the the band that's in play. Um, so my opening advice was don't do anything to screw it up. Don't, you know, don't piss anyone off. Um, you know, related to that, my advice was be calm. I, I thought the jurisdictional argument, uh, for president Trump's lawyers at times, they got a little hot, they got a little angry and, mm-hmm. and I encourage them be calm, be reasonable, be rational. The way I put it is I said, think more like an appellate argument, like you're arguing to Supreme Court justices and less like a jury argument. Um, So we'll see if they follow through on that. The the most important advice I had, I said, look, we've had two days of the Democrat House managers arguments and and 90% of what they've done has focused on being emotional and powerful and telling the story of what happened on January 6th, telling the story of the assault, the attack on the Capitol, telling the story of the police officers who were physically assaulted, telling the story of, of Officer Sicknick, who, who was murdered that day, 
And, and I got to say, they did it powerfully. Um, the Democrats, they have some good trial lawyers. They have some good storytellers. And, and so as they told that story over and over again, it, it was powerful and effective. And that was 90% of their argument. And my advice to the Trump lawyers is disagree with none of it. Look, yes, we agree. Hmm. Everyone in this jury, all the senators were here that day. It was a horrific ter- terrorist attack. It was despicable. And anyone who committed crimes of violence that day should be fully prosecuted and locked up a long, long time. And so don't argue with them on that. That, that is indisputably true. Everyone in the, in the Senate understands that, believes that. And everyone agrees on it. The only question before the Senate is whether President Trump committed high crimes or misdemeanors. And there's only one that is charged, and that is incitement, incitement to violence. And I pointed out in the entire 16 hours they had allocated, the Democratic House managers devoted about 15 minutes to that question. And it was the the, the second to last uh, speech that the House managers gave. It was a congressman from uh, Colorado who's actually a talented trial lawyer who got up and he spent about 15 minutes laying out the legal argument why they believe this constitutes incitement. And that, to be honest, it's the only relevant moment. In fact, I said the entire time, it's the only time I pulled out a notepad and made any notes because it was the only time they actually said anything relevant to the question before the body. What the House managers articulated was a three-part standard for incitement. They said, number one, was violence foreseeable? Number two, did President Trump encourage the violence? And number three, was the president's conduct willful? So I wrote those three down. And the point I made to the Trump lawyers, I said, first of all, you'll notice those three elements are not found anywhere in a statute. They're not elements of a crime. They're not actually the elements of incitement. Hmm. They're not found in Brandenburg, the Supreme Court case that, that talks about incitement and lays out the constitutional standard. They literally just made them up. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very strange way to prosecute a crime. As I said, look, you know, a lot of the lawyers on the defense team have been either prosecutors or criminal defense lawyers. The way a prosecutor proceeds, if they're charging you with a, with a crime, there are statutory elements of the crime. Here's what constitutes the crime. And the prosecutor sets out to prove each of the elements of the crime. That's not, in fact, how the House managers proceeded here because they can't meet the statutory elements for incitement. So they just made these three up. Okay, those are the three they made up. I said, look, I'd start by pointing out where did these come from? They literally just pulled them out of whole cloth. But then here's the critical point. I'd say, look, on any standard, the question for the Senate to assess is, is there any coherent way this test can distinguish between the conduct of Donald Trump versus the conduct of countless other political figures, including a whole bunch of Democrats? Right, right. And and I said, look, I think you should walk through, in particular, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Maxine Waters, Kamala Harris. Nancy Pelosi, she referred to uh, police officers as stormtroopers, compared them to Nazis. Right. You know, there's some rich irony that suddenly the Democrats are the defenders of cops. Of course, yeah. Where for a year... They've been vilifying, demonizing police officers. They've been marching against cops. They've been saying abolish the police. They've been saying abolish ICE. They've been embracing 
ACAB as a slogan. And Michael, you know what ACAB means? <laughs> it's it's that all cap cops are bastards. Are bastards, right? Yeah. That's and that has been the Democratic base that they've been snuggling up with. They don't get to suddenly be the grand defenders of police officers. Yeah, I, you know, I I love this senator. This uh, I guess two points here in this advice that a lot of Republicans have have not recognized, which is one. Don't always be on the defensive. You can go on the offensive here. You can point at inconsistencies. You yeah. can use the Democrats' words against them. But but maybe even more importantly, you don't have to accept their ridiculous premises. You know, the, the early premise that exactly. I think that the Democrats are trying to get these Republicans to buy into is that somehow Republicans support riots at the Capitol. I don't know any serious Republicans who say, yeah, I, I loved when the right. guy in the bullhorns walked in there. He's my guy. Where can I vote for him? And, and likewise, uh, I, I mean, you've just spelled it out so perfectly on, uh, on the, the question of incitement. If I, look, I'm, I'm not a constitutional law scholar. I'm not a lawyer of, of any sort. If, if I were just listening. But you did stay at a Holiday Inn last night. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn. That's right. <laughs> It, you know, if I were just listening to them lay out this standard for incitement, I guess I would say, okay, well, that sounds about right. I mean, I don't know what the real standard is. So if if the legal team can go in there and say, wait a second, uh, just so you all know, they completely made that up out of whole cloth. That is not the actual standard for incitement. There is no reason for us to accept premises that have been crafted purely to put us at a disadvantage. We're going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about what what is uh, – always been true, you know, what the longstanding standard here for incitement, th that seems much more effective than just going along with, with what the Democrats are trying to lead them. I, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and what I encourage the Trump lawyers to do is say, all right, take their standard and apply it to the conduct of Democrats. Let's take, for example, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders uses all sorts of hot incendiary rhetoric. And, and you'll recall, we had a crazed lunatic, a leftist who was an, a, a enthusiastic Bernie Sanders supporter who came to Washington, D.C. With, with an AR-15, went and sought out the congressional baseball game practice, asked, are they Democrats or Republicans? They're Republicans. So he went to kill Republican members of Congress. There were two senators there, Rand Paul and Jeff Flake, that there were a dozen or so House members there. And he opened fire on them. And, and, and it was only the coincidence that Steve Scalise happened to be there. So Steve Scalise is a member uh, of House leadership, so his detail was there. And there were Capitol Police officers who engaged with this crazed lunatic and stopped him, but they didn't stop him before he had shot Steve Scalise and nearly killed him. I mean, Steve spent yeah. months in the hospital. I mean, it was a serious wound. Steve, for many months after that, could, couldn't walk, was on crutches. He's doing much better now, but it was a life-threatening injury and, and, and all right, let's take their three standards. Was violence foreseeable? Well, given the rhetoric Bernie was using, and I encourage them, you know, play videos, show the rhetoric Bernie was using. He mm. said, they're trying to take your health, health care away and want you to die. Okay. Is violence foreseeable from that? Did Bernie encourage it? I, you know, I guarantee you Bernie has the rhetoric saying, go fight, stop it, go, has exactly the kind of rhetoric Donald Trump used. Yep. Um, and then was it willful under that standard? Bernie's conduct apparently is incitement. I guess we're going to start the removal proceedings for Bernie Sanders. 
Uh, Maxine Waters, who told her supporters, if you see a Republican, go harass them, engage them, yell at them, surround them. I mean, that is inviting violence. By the way, Cory Booker did the same thing. Um, And the most compelling, uh, Chuck Schumer on on the steps of the Supreme Court, calling out two Supreme Court justices by name and saying, you've unleashed the whirlwind, you're going to pay the price. But the central example, and what I encourage them to make it exactly side by side is Kamala Harris. Hmm. So Kamala Harris did a couple of things. Number one, as we had Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots all over the country, and we had violence going on, we had police cars being firebombed, we had police cars, police officers being murdered. Kamala Harris went on Stephen Colbert and was asked about it, said, this is a movement, it's powerful. And she said, and it needs to keep going. Right. It, it won't end and it shouldn't end. And it shouldn't end. She explicitly encouraged that. It, and this was, by the way, after the violence, after the riots. Not only that, but she raised money yeah. for bail money to bail out. And by the way, it wasn't bailing out the peaceful protesters. The people who were arrested were the people committing acts of violence. So she literally raised bail money to support the violent criminals. Yeah. And all right, let's look at the three standards. This is apparently the standard for incitement. Was violence foreseeable? It was going on right then. It was not only foreseeable, it was blazingly obvious and indisputable because it was happening as she was speaking. She knew full well. Did she encourage it? She explicitly said, yes, it needs to go on. Was it willful? She raised money supporting the violent criminals, and and there's no coherent way that the standard the House Democrats have put forward can conclude that Trump committed incitement and Kamala Harris didn't. You, you, You can conclude rightly that neither committed the crime of incitement. That's actually the right answer. Or you can use their made-up standard, in which case, right after we finish with Donald Trump, I guess we're going to start an impeachment proceeding of Vice President Kamala Harris. Right, right. But you don't get both. And by the way, under their standards, in a lot of ways, Kamala's behavior was worse. Yeah. As, as I told him to ask, I said, listen, last I checked, Donald Trump isn't raising bail money for the violent criminals. There are a whole bunch of people who have been arrested. He's not raising bail money for them. She raised money for them. So if it is, and this is another important point I made, Michael. So the House managers put a lot of emphasis on, did President Trump do enough to stop the riot once it's happened? Did he denounce it? Did he tell him to stand down? And I said, look, you guys got to decide as president's lawyer what you think about that. Frankly, I wish he'd done more. Uh, when I when I look back at what he said that day, I wish he had been clearer, more unequivocal, saying "Stop this right now, immediately, go home and leave." There were a lot of Republicans calling on him to do that. I wish he had been clearer. But within an hour or two, he sent out a tweet telling him to stand down. He put out a video calling on him to stand down. So he did, in fact, tell him to stand down. I wish it had been clearer and more unequivocal, but he did, in fact, do it. Kamala Harris still hasn't done it. Yeah, right, right. We had this week Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters marching in D.C. saying, burn the place down. She still hasn't told them to stand down. Yeah. And so if that's the test, did you tell them to stand down after the violence erupted? Look, what we had in the Chaz Autonomous Zones, we had Democrats 
defending it, calling it the summer of love. Remember that? (laughs) It's just harmless. Yes, people are being murdered, but it's harmless because we agree politically with those guys. Yeah. And, and, And so what I urge the Trump legal team is to calmly, without emotion, just compare the conduct of Democrats to what the conduct of the president and under the standard they're laying out, either we're going to start impeaching dozens of people or ain't nobody guilty of this because this is a made-up political persecution, which is, again, the right answer to what's happened. You know, th- I think this is great advice, not just for the impeachment trial, though it is, but, but just generally speaking, reject their false premises and hold them to their own standards. Because this is so much bigger than impeachment. Frankly, I think impeachment isn't even the biggest news story right now. It'll have historical implications, so so we really have to focus on it. Uh, but the bigger stories right now involve cancel culture more broadly, not just uh, canceling the former president, but canceling TV stars, canceling journalists. And we've seen this with Gina Carano, who is in the uh, Star Wars show, The Mandalorian. Uh, Disney has fired her because of, they're accusing her of making anti-Semitic comments. I've read all the comments. I can't find even a hint of anti-Semitism in any of them. Really, I think they're going after her because broadly speaking, she's been a little more conservative. She's been a little more right-wing and they can't tolerate that. Uh, So they're going after her. We've just uh, found out that James O'Keefe, the investigative journalist, a real thorn in the side of of the liberal establishment, he's been permanently kicked off of Twitter because it turns out he's now running investigations on big tech companies. Uh, what, What these people have been ostracized for and censored for would absolutely fall apart if you held the left to that same standard. It seems there's one set of rules for conservatives, another one for liberals, but that's the world we live in. What what are we supposed to do about it? Look, I think you're exactly right. What happened with Gina Carano is nuts. I mean, number one, you have a strong, kick-ass character on The Mandalorian, which which lots of kids, especially little girls, are are inspired by and 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 you know made you know helped made Star Wars more fun. Uh, it's always been fun. And I mean, look, I grew up on Star Wars. I still remember standing in line with my dad on opening day of Empire Strikes Back. And we stood in line for two hours to see Empire the first day it opened up. Um, Disney, Disney is not the company it used to be. Disney is a giant corporate, uh, politically correct propaganda outfit. And, and you look at here... So, so I haven't read all of the, the, the blog posts that, that, that Gina Carano put up. I've, I've seen, I actually looked for it online and it was hard to find. Yeah. Uh, but I read stories quoting excerpts of it. So I read the excerpts that were quoted in stories. And what I read that she posted is she was saying, look, if you looked at, at the rise uh, of the Nazis in Germany and, and all of the horrific things that, that happened to the Jewish people that culminated in, in 6 million Jews being, being murdered in concentration camps, that began because the Nazis demonized the Jews. They dehumanized the Jews. They, they, they used rhetoric that caused ordinary Germans, not SS stormtroopers, but a, a baker or, or, you know, a storekeeper, to view the Jews as, as subhuman, as not human, to, to inculcate hatred. And, and her point was that hatred... Uh, yes, it erupted in in the horrific, grotesquely evil 
uh, genocide that was carried out by the Nazis, but it also manifested in day-to-day barbaric inhumanity because they had been dehumanized. And, and, And from what I read of her blog post, she was saying, you know what, we're seeing that same dehumanizing happening in America where people are demonizing, they're otherizing their political opponents. That that if you disagree, you you are not, it's not valid for you to have a different point of view. Now, from what I read, she didn't say that we've become Nazi Germany. She didn't say we're erecting concentration camps. But because she simply made the point that spreading a culture of hate and dehumanizing is really dangerous and leads in bad directions, Disney described her comments as abhorrent. And I was yeah. like saying we shouldn't hate each other and dehumanize each other. What what am I missing? Unless there are portions of the blog post that weren't quoted in the stories. And given that the stories are critical, I'm assuming they included whatever the worst portions were. This is, there's an irony that she's complaining we're becoming hateful and intolerant of differences in opinions. And what does Disney say? We hate your opinion, you're fired. It would seem to me there's this uh, even deeper irony here, which is uh, maybe the, the best way I can read Disney's statement is they're saying that any comment that makes any comparison to Nazi Germany is unacceptable. It's abhorrent. We can't, we can't tolerate that sort of thing. And uh, okay, let's just take that standard for what it is. Am I wrong or has the left not spent the past five years calling Donald Trump literally Hitler, right? They call him Hitler. They refer to to 75 million Americans as Nazis, neo-Nazis regularly. So they they make the exact same uh, analogy. And and before Trump, they called George W. Bush Hitler. That's their standard. Any Republican they dislike, they call Hitler. Now, my view is you shouldn't actually call people Hitler unless they are, in fact, genocidal maniacs that are murdering millions of people. Yeah, right, that there right. is a unique, like like in, in Dante's circles of, of hell, there is a unique hell. The Nazis are the most grotesque example of, of evil um, in, in certainly modern times and maybe ever. Look, there is a reason why Never Forget has such power. There's a reason why Holocaust museums are important because it's worth reflecting on the absolute inhumanity. You, you know, you look at uh, Hannah Arendt, who, who, who you know wrote on what led to to the to the evil that is the Nazis, and she had a phrase that that was really powerful: uh, the banality of evil. And 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 it's worth reflecting. And she really mm-hmm. she talked about how. It's not just, you know, someone cackling with horns and a red tail, like so obviously evil that, that, you know, you're like, okay, this is, this is a crazy bad guy. It was the boring aspect. She talked about, I think it was Eichmann, how when he testified at Nuremberg, he, he, he sounded like an accountant, that it wasn't. It wasn't Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs to to sort of mix references. It wasn't like, you know, Lecter's giant eyes on the screen. You're like, oh, God, that guy's really creepy and evil. But it was a boring accountant simply carrying out Hitler's, quote, final solution to murder six million people. It, It was, it's worth asking what conditions led 
to use another movie, you know, Schindler's List, which is one of the greatest movies ever. I love Schindler's List. But it talks about how in a different world, these people would be regular, ordinary people, and yet the conditions of evil made them all complicit in this grotesque horror. We should ask what causes that to happen. And and from what I read, that's that's what Gina was doing. Right. I mean, just, you know, take the the Nazi comparison out, because that seems to be what they're objecting to. The, just the circumstances the, and the, the broader point that Gina was making uh, seems to be perfectly true. I don't know, I don't know how you could disagree with it. And, and this is, you know, it's not just happening in Hollywood. And, 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 and let me jump in, jump in real quick, Michael. There's also a broader pattern of evil, which is that dehumanizing anyone, yeah. defining them to no longer qualify as human, invariably leads to horrific oppression. And so it was integral to what the Nazis did, but it was also integral to slavery. And, and you look at, at all of the reasoning that, that, that was used to justify the horrific evil that was slavery in America, it was based on the proposition, Dred Scott, the Supreme Court decision, was based on the proposition that an African-American was not a human being, but instead yeah. was defined as, as property. And that is incredibly dangerous and it leads to grotesque oppression and evil. And and you and I have talked about this before. That is also the justification that is used to, to justify abortion is to say an unborn child is not a human being. That any time you're taking, and it, it leads to uh, today's Democrats justifying things like partial birth abortion, delivering a child who's living and 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 with cold blood taking their life, all of those begin with saying the person in question is not a person. And that is a really dangerous step one of an analysis because step two is is invariably horrific. And, you know, we've been hearing on the topic of otherizing or dehumanization, half the country called deplorable, irredeemable. Going back to Obama, bitter clingers, right? You know, these people who basically ought to be ostracized from society. We're now seeing this ostracism manifest through cancel culture. So people lose their jobs. They lose their platforms uh, through the censorship, through the through actual deplatforming on the social media platforms. The uh, cancellation of journalists. James O'Keefe would be a, a key example of this. This seems to be. And that's outrageous, by the way, the, the, the fact that 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 Social media has banned James O'Keefe. Look, James O'Keefe, the guy has done incredible undercover journalism. And and they may not like that he's exposed what people on the left are doing, including exposing big tech. By the way, this is a protect their own asses step Hmm. because he's uncovered the corruption of big tech. And so they're like, well, let's just muzzle him. That's you know, this is trying to silence a whistleblower because he gets whistleblowers and he engages in, in, in undercover tactics, which, by the way, 60 Minutes does. Other right. journalistic outlets do. But the difference is that big tech agrees with their politics, so that's great. But if you disagree with their politics, this is the left is trying to consolidate power and they're systematically trying to silence every single dissenting voice. And I think this word banality is very important because the, the way they're yes. doing it, uh, what I, what has really impressed me most about it is how steady it is, how gradual. It's not, you know, people jumping out with the devil horns and saying, aha, it's just this slow. 
more and more people being kicked off of social media, yep. not being permitted to even work or not being permitted to go to, go to it's school. It's boiling a frog. Yes, it is boiling a frog. And, you know, th this gets to a mailbag question that I, I was hoping to get to last night, but obviously there was a lot, lot going on with the trial. Uh, this is from Right Minded USA, who asks, He's referring to that Time magazine article where uh, liberal establishmentarians basically said there was a conspiracy yeah. in the 2020 election. Uh, it was right before our eyes, though. It was all these groups kind of working to make the situation more advantageous to Democrats. He says, in light of that Time article that detailed the collusion between the AFL-CIO Big Tech and the Chamber of Commerce to win the 2020 election, what does the senator think the GOP and conservatives should be doing right now to build something to counteract it? in 2022, and more importantly, in 2024? Look, it's a great question. And, and, and that article was chilling. Number one, Time Magazine was celebrating yeah. that you had the, the titans of industry, the Fortune 500 CEOs, teaming up with big tech, and then teaming up with the big union bosses, all of them together saying, let's work together to make sure Donald Trump can't win this election. Let's work together to, to hand this election over to Joe Biden. And, and by the way, anyone who said this before the election, who said that the, the, that the fix was in, would get ridiculed as a crazy conspiracy theorist. And then afterwards, Time Magazine said, oh, look how wonderful the fix was in. Aren't we happy? Because we're part of the people engaged in this. Look, I think as conservatives, we need to be not naive. Um, you and I did a live episode in, in Miami last week, and, and our big theme was big is bad. Big business is bad. Big government is bad. Big tech is bad. Any big yeah. accumulation of power and money will be used. You, you know, it's like Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Giant corporation, name me one Fortune 100 CEO who's actually a courageous conservative. <laughs> right. We'd be here all night. It doesn't. It's why, in fact, they were willing to get in bed with their ostensible adversary, the union bosses, to preserve power. I think the answer is we've got to empower the people. We've got to go around big tech. I think the answer, frankly, is things like the podcast. I think the answer is finding ways to empower the people and, and to focus on small businesses. Look, it is the small businesses that that you know, the economist Schumpeter talked about creative destruction. I'm look, I, I'm interested in small entrepreneurs, people that are sh shattering the status quo. And, and, and frankly, there, there are more of us than there are of them. They're willing to use power to hold on to control. But there is a common sense conservative core in this country, and we've got to develop ways to mobilize, educate, energize, and turn them out that's how we fight against it because you better believe they've done it once. They're going to keep doing it again and again. Those with power want to hold on to power. And the only way to stop them is to take it away from them. And the only thing powerful to do that is the people. You know, you're, you're going to be accused of uh, being a populist for saying these sorts of things. But what you are saying is such an important point, And it's something that has driven me crazy about the GOP for years, which is they have all too often cozied up to these big business, yep. and in many cases, these, these oligarchs who hate our values, who often have very little loyalty to the country, who, who push radical leftism, who abuse their power, who are cronies and crooks very often. And, and there's nothing particularly conservative about that. You know, conservatives once understood that big, unlimited power is a, a danger to the people and to constitutional government, whether it's in a government bureaucracy or whether it's in a corporate bureaucracy.
I think that's exactly right. And 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 there's another dynamic. Look, I, I'm not interested in attacking a company that's a job creator and trying to destroy them. I like jobs. Mm-hmm. I want as many jobs as possible. But if you look at what happens with big business, they almost invariably get in bed with big government. There's a reason yeah. big business wants Joe Biden, wants socialism, because they profit. And and my view of big business, and I look, I work with lots of companies, lots of employers. As I say, if you want a if you want a subsidy, if you want corporate welfare, if you want a special handout, I ain't your guy. Yeah, we shouldn't be in the business of corporate welfare, of benefiting corporations. Doesn't mean I'm going to go out and try to destroy businesses that are yeah. giving people good livelihoods. But you know, the big companies of the world, they don't need government's help. Also, what big business does, it's not just that they want subsidies and and welfare. They want government to hammer the little guys. So big business goes to government and says, you know, the only thing that can beat us is some upstart small business that might challenge us. Can you shut them down? And, and, and that pattern, it, it, it is, they're both focused on maintaining the power of the status quo. And, and, and it's, look, conservatives who believe in the free market, there's something revolutionary about the free market. You look at socialist countries and communist countries, there are giant companies that are the status quo. Nothing changes. When government is controlling the economy, whoever's in charge stays in charge. It is about maintaining power. There is a, a chaos that, that statists hate in a free market society, but that's incredibly good for prosperity and opportunity because it means little guys can achieve great things. You don't have to be born into the lucky sperm club of just happening to be, you know, gosh, I was born in the right family. So woohoo, I get to be a, a, a Duke or what have you. It, instead, it is you succeed based on the content of your character. I did not anticipate the phrase lucky sperm club coming up on the show tonight, but I think the point is very, <laughs> very important. And this, this is really what but, we're talking and, about. And by the way, if, if, if we do get sponsors and advertisers, let's turn them down. If, if that's actually like, uh, you, you know, sort of a CD club, let, let, let's just not take yeah, ads. From that one is, they, they have no place on this show. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that, that is really what we're talking about here is the future because this impeachment trial, this whole thing that's happening right now. This, it feels like we're just stuck in mud. That is coming to an end, and, and we'll have to look to the, to the future, the future for the conservative movement and the future for the country. And and Michael, two things to go back where we started, two things just to close out on of, of advice that I gave the Trump lawyers. Number one, I said that the, the House managers keep using the, the, the word insurrectionist. And my advice to the Trump lawyers is don't repeat that. Um. I would refer to them either as rioters or violent criminals. And, and the reason is, look, insurrection actually has a definition under the law. An insurrection is an organized, it's like a revolution. It, it, it's designed to, to overturn the government and to take over the country. That's the Democrats' political narrative. It's why they keep using insurrectionists, insurrectionists, insurrectionists. It's, by the way, why they also um, apologize for and brush under the rug the rioters who are burning cities all across the country because yeah. they say, oh, well, they're not insurrectionists. They're just murderers. Murderers are okay. Yeah. Or peaceful protesters. And my advice, I, I told the Trump lawyers, look, don't make the argument about whether they're insurrectionists or not. That That is quicksand. Just don't buy into the Democrats' yeah. phrasing of terms. Just call yeah. them what they are unquestionably, which is violent criminals. And, and then a second thing that I told them is I said, 
look, sitting on the Republican side of the Senate floor and talking with a lot of the Republican senators, as I have been during this trial, a sentiment that is very widely felt is real frustration with the Democrats of their hypocrisy. And, and, and the hypocrisy is rich. I, you know, I mentioned before how they're uh, waxing eloquently about how, how much they love police officers after spending a year demonizing cops. One of the House managers did a presentation of protesters who showed up at the House of, I think it was the Michigan Secretary of State. And they, it was a high dungeon, just, can you believe they would come to the House? How terrible that is. And I got to tell you, most of the Republican senators, we've had protesters coming to our House. Right. I, I had a couple of weeks ago, protesters yeah. put three full-size coffins in my front yard while Heidi was at home and while my kids were at school. And, and, and virtually all of us have had this happen. Susan Collins, leftist protesters dropped off, I think it was hundreds of body bags at her home. Not only that, they threatened both Susan Collins and her staff with sexual assault. They threatened to rape them. Eric Swalwell, who's one of the House impeachment managers, when they did that, he tweeted out in response to the threats of rape against Susan Collins and her staff, he tweeted out, boo-hoo, cry me a river. These guys, the hypocrisy, and by the way, Susan remembers that. Yeah. So when we're listening to these Democrats suddenly decry oh, we don't like people coming to your house. Okay, I actually agree that you shouldn't be coming to any right. public official's <laughs> house and terrorizing their family. Engage in free speech in the public square, but leave people's families and homes alone. Yep. But the Democrats don't. They've remained silent, and not just silent, they've cheered it on when it's their leftist supporters harassing others, and now suddenly they discovered virtue. And I, I think... I think tomorrow in, in the president lawyer's presentation, we're going to see the theme of hypocrisy uh, coming out pretty powerfully. And I think that will resonate uh, certainly among Republican senators. It's, it's something that a lot of Republican senators, when we sit down for lunch before the trial, a lot of us are thinking and, and, and pretty irritated with the, the holier than thou sense we're getting from the House managers. Well, if that advice can in any way persuade this legal team and the Republicans more broadly to hold Democrats to their own standards. That will be a a massive step forward and an advantage. We have to leave it there, but we will uh, get into a whole lot more, I assume, uh, depending on how long it takes to uh, finally acquit uh, President Trump, former President Trump, in the impeachment trial of a now private citizen. Uh, We will obviously break down more of that. Thank you to everyone for subscribing. If you haven't already subscribed, be sure to subscribe to Verdict wherever you get your podcasts, be that YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. We'll be back with a whole lot more. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 